This morning I want to tell you about uh, two different events that happened that I witnessed actually at two different times in two different churches. Uh, About five miles down the road from our place where we milked cows down in Valley, uh, there's a place nicknamed The Mansion. Uh, People would say, have you seen The Mansion? And uh, it's a big building there. Uh, overlooking about 320 acres of good farmland. There's some horses on it now, if you're ever down around that area. But this mansion wasn't always there. I remember when it wasn't there and when it was built, and I believe it was around 1979 that it was built. I can remember it clearly while it was being built because you had to watch the traffic when you drove down by the place that you might run into somebody because they're stopped in the middle of the road looking at this building, this house that was being built. You see, it stuck out like a sore thumb, really, to tell you the truth. Uh, in that farm community, we'd never seen anything like that. And uh, it was large, I understand. I never did measure, but I understand it was over 10,000 square feet. Just kind of give you an idea. Had three, has three floors, three stories rather, high. Has an elevator in it. <clears throat> a full-size indoor heating swimming pool, which I'll testify I did see the steam come off the windows a few times when I was there. Many other uh, rooms in it. And in fact, Lou has had the opportunity to see part of the inside. There was a women's Bible study there once, and it has a rotating stage inside of it. So it's quite the deal. But not only that, uh, what makes it really stick out is the siding. It wasn't uh, clapboard or a T-111. It was white stucco siding, and which would fit real good down in Southern California, Arizona. But in Valley, Washington, it didn't seem to fit too well. Well, needless to say, in our small community, the word got around. I don't know if it's strictly uh, gossip, but it did get around as to who owned it and their financial status. And we found out that they were millionaires. And uh, I understand that they made most of their money in oil in California somewhere. Then they sold their place, came up here, and built this one. Well, anyway, I did meet the guy. Uh, One day he was working on his well, and I went down and introduced myself. Just small talk stuff. Well, after the house was built and uh, they settled in, they started looking for a Christian church to worship in. Uh, They hopped from church to church trying to find one in the community, which I thought was good because they could have went to Spokane. Maybe they would have fit in better at Spokane, but they wanted to find one in the community. So one Sunday, (coughs) they tried the church that I was or we were attending at that time, the Free Methodist Church right down the road here. And I remember, because I was outside um, greeting people, and uh, at the time that this white Cadillac pulled up and stopped right in the front of the church, a place that was in park there, a place that was usually reserved for uh, letting people off and uh, or letting with some disability or someone older, like we are, most of us. (laughs) But I wasn't at that time. (laughs) That was quite a few years ago. Well, after a couple, the couple got out of their car, the man hit a little button he had in his hand, and uh, automatically I heard the thing, the car beep, and, and, and the locks went down, and alarm went, uh, set up the alarm. Well, now I was impressed. You, you probably are not impressed with this, but because probably a lot of your automobiles has that little luxury, but not in '79. I doubt if they did. 
And uh, I stood there, I'm sure, with my wife, uh, my mouth open. <coughs> but <coughs> so out, out of this car comes uh, a man with a white suit. And uh, that was stuck out a little bit. And the wife, uh, I think, she, I, I can't remember what she was dressed, but she was dressed to the hill. It looked real nice, real nice looking lady. An older couple. <coughs> I looked around and I noticed the other people that were standing outside in our church. They too seemed to be impressed. They're, I wasn't the only one standing there with my mouth open. So uh, now I want to take you to a different time. And uh, about 120 miles from here, about five, uh, five and a half, Five years, I guess, is pretty close to five years later, 120 miles from here. Uh, a church that I was, my church, first church I was pastoring in Sanders, Idaho. Now, Sanders, Idaho, a lot of people don't know where that is. They know where Plummer, Tenset, they know where Moscow, Idaho is, but where's Sanders? Well, you really do have to look. There's a sign saying Sanders, a little green sign. It's two miles off the beaten track of Highway 95. But, and if you were to find a map that had Sanders in it, uh, it would be a population, I remember seeing this, population of 10. So it kind of gives you an idea. It was more of a community. There was one store then, it's, it's been closed for many years. It had a gas pump, a kind of mercantile. But uh, that was about it for Sanders. But there was a church there, a church that many people started years and years ago. And the th- let's see, the church was built in 22, so it was pretty old. Well, anyway... Uh, one Sunday, a guy by the name of Patrick uh, came into our church, and uh, he walked uh, that morning to church and didn't have a car, no Cadillac or anything, but anyway, he walked, walked to church, and he had, uh, uh, he said he had come seven miles to church, and, uh, and quite a bit of snow outside. I, I could see his tracks going across the, the parking lot. That morning, as I looked out the window, it was a cold, wintry day. So the first thing Patrick did is, is uh, to get up by the register. We had a, it's about a three-foot square register, if you've ever been to Sanders Church. And it sat in the back, and that's how you heated the whole church. There was no insulation in that church. I'd start the fire about uh, three hours before church, so the place would be fairly warm. Anyway, Patrick wore these moccasins that he had made. And uh, he had a piece of uh, uh, tire tread sewed to the bottom of him. And he claimed that that would give him not only more traction, but they would last longer. <clears throat> he arrived about a half hour before uh, Sunday school started. And so as he stood in the back, and I think myself and Lou were probably the only ones there that, that earlier in the morning or whatever. Nobody in congregation had come there. So he, as he stood there over that three-foot register <coughs> in the sanctuary, he began to thaw out these leathers that he was wearing, homemade deerskin pants. Now, uh, just to make it clear, Patrick was a white man. He was <laughs> Indian, you know, so, uh, but he had lived in communes for uh, like nine years, he told me, prior to this time. And he lived way up in the hills there in northern Idaho. Anyway, he was, uh, had long Thick hair, I remember that. Not combed. He had a beard and a mustache. And he told me later that he had never shaved in his life of 27 years. And I believed it by looking at him. <laughs> never, never touched a razor, he said. Because he's kind of a tough-looking guy. Well, anyway, as uh, he stood over that register, a strong odor <laughs> began to erode from him from the leathers that he wore. And uh, <clears throat> he told me that 
Uh, he must have picked up on a little bit of it because he uh, volunteered the information that he had butchered to help butcher a couple of hogs the day before in those same leathers, his only clothes. Uh, a pretty tough-looking, pretty tough-smelling uh, guy, to say the least. It reminded me of a story that I heard years ago about two men who worked in close quarters, you know, and it was a hot day, and they're sweating profusely. And finally, one turned to the other, and he says, uh, one of our deodorants is not working very well. And the other guy says, well, it must be yours, because I don't wear any. <laughs> <laughs> and that was Patrick. He didn't wear any either. I don't... <coughs> Now, let's say hypothetically that supposing that these two individuals, these two fellows, came to our church, our assembly here, uh, some Sunday. They came at the same time. They were visitors. Uh, one with a white suit, driving a white Cadillac, and Patrick with his long matted hair, beard, clothes made out of leathers and smelled like slaughtered hogs. Uh, how would you approach uh, these new visitors? Which one, uh, which one would you like to see come back next week? And uh, would you have a tendency to favor one over the other? Uh, We've got to be honest here now. <laughs> well, that's the situation that James addresses today in this portion of Scripture we're going to look at, chapter 2. And he may remind you that he's talking to Christians. My brethren, he starts out. Brothers and sisters in Christ. <clears throat> just to re, uh, bring to your memory a little bit about James, remember the one that's credited for writing this book is James, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, is the one that's really credited with him, with writing it. And uh, after he, he's writing to the uh, Christians, 12 tribes who are scattered abroad, because, probably because of persecution, and uh, he's writing to them to bring them some uh, good news, encouraging news, and so he starts out his letter, do you remember that? Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Wow, consider joy or trial a joy? Pretty tough to do. I know some of you have been through some tough trials. I know some of you are going through trials right now, as we've heard this morning in the prayer request. And some, the trials are up ahead. Uh, you might be enjoying a honeymoon time right now. <clears throat> but mark it down. He didn't say if you encounter various trials. He said when you encounter various trials. You walk with the Lord, you'll have some. Why do they come upon us? That's the first thing you will ask. Why me, Lord? James says it's to test your faith. Simple as that. How strong is your faith? Is Usually the Lord, as I think uh, Dan just said this morning, gives you just enough that you can take and that would give you endurance for the next trial that comes. It drives the roots a little bit deeper each trial for the next one that comes along the line. And that's what James is saying. So that's why you can consider it joy. Because God believes in you enough to trust you. That you're going to be able to come through this with flying colors. Well, that's kind of an introduction. I'm not going to cover those, that whole chapter one. In fact, I look back. Uh, I started that on June 7, 2012, three years ago. So the pastor talked about going through Luke a little bit over a year. It's taken me three years to get through one chapter. So hang in there. <coughs> At this time, why don't we uh, read the James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Please stand for the reading of God's word. James 2, 1 through 
13. My brethren, do not hold your faith in your glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and these also, and there, excuse me, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and you say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there, and, or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored your, the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however... You are fulfilling the royal law. According to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles on one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who, who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. James is hard on us. Uh, Sometimes, Lord, he hits us uh, where we don't where we never expected it. We pray, though, we have to be open to you. We can't uh, be daydreaming today if we want to hear from you, Lord. And uh, and we do. We're not here, Lord, just to warm a chair. We're here to hear from you. We pray that our ears are open, our hearts are receptive to what you have to say to us. Just give each of us, Lord, just a little one-liner, something that we can take home, chew on for this week. Give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So here we have it. Two different examples on how Christians uh, tend to treat two different classes of people that might visit the assembly, the church, a poor man and a rich man. The heading over the first 13 verses in this Chapter, at least in mine, it's called the sin of partiality. Perhaps yours is the sin of favoritism. Definition of part, partiality is means favoritism or to favor unreasonably, to discriminate. But that's not exactly 2,000 years old, is it? That's what we're, I understand behind the, the battles we're even having down in Baltimore right now, the riots, discrimination. Well, even though James focused on the uh, rich and the poor here, I believe the principles that he gives us go much broader in their application. Uh, We can all uh, be guilty of sinful discrimination, favoritism, unless we develop a kind of love that uh, we see uh, or that we put on the labels of different people that we meet. One another, the labels we put. 
example of those labels often is uh, the label uh, perhaps we value intelligence uh, in, in our children. And we label them as fast learners or slow learners, more like myself. And often, though, the first question we ask about a child is, um, how do they do in school? And if we value intelligence. If we value physical appearance, we label people as unattractive or attractive. Uh, or maybe in between, or just plain ugly. I mean, you know, I threw that in. <laughs> That's free. But anyway, if we value money, we label people uh, as well-to-do, don't we? So-so, uh, uh, or they're, they're poor. We wonder how much uh, they make and how much they're worth a lot of times if we value money. Well, James uh, challenges each of us then to examine our own hearts to see if perhaps we are harboring some secret prejudice within. He tells us clearly that there are some problems with partiality, but he also gives us uh, some solutions to those problems. And problem number one is partiality exposes our evil motives, our selfish motives in many cases. Partiality exposes it. Notice verse 2 through 4 again. For if a man comes into your assembly with gold, with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing those fine clothes, and say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? When we bought our place, uh, our farm that we eventually milked some cows, we bought it from a, uh, we were shown it uh, by a realtor out of Spokane. I think he worked for Century 21 at that time. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, anyway, uh, he took us out to the place. He says, I got a place, I was looking for a farm. And uh, he took us out to Valley there, and uh, this was 1971. And uh, anyway, he showed us this farm, and it seemed to fit the bill, and we had enough money for a down payment on the place and uh, yeah, at uh, 110 acres at that time and, uh, you know, barn and stuff. So anyway, everything seemed to fit pretty good and, and uh, we signed the papers and the realtor took care of that. But I noticed then the next month the realtor comes around after everything's signed, sealed and delivered. We had to pay uh, payments of $400 a month to the, the man who was carrying the contract. And uh, anyway, so the realtor came out the next month and and then the next month, and the next month, and I thought, man, this is quite a guy. I even recommended him. I said, he really cares about if we're going to make it, because we didn't have any cows, and uh, he knew we'd probably have to make a dairying. And I looked at a couple of herds of cows, and, and uh, anyway, we did find one. But over this period of time, it was about four or five months before we started milking, but this realtor kept coming out there. <coughs> so checking on us, just small talk. He'd catch me outside or something, and... How's things going, Jim? Uh, you, you know, you find any leads on any cows and all that. And anyway, bottom line is, that went on and on. And uh, so I never thought nothing of it, to tell you the truth, Till years later, I found out that that realtor uh, was promised part of his commission out of my payment. Now, $100 uh, out of my $400 went to him. The man that sold the place says, you really believe in these kids that they could make it on this place? Uh, Okay, put your money where your mouth is, more or less, and uh, you'll get $100 of their $400 a month payment. And uh, 
So anyway, and that's the way it went for a year. So his $1,200 uh, commission, he had to hold back on a little bit. But it kind of made me wonder about his motive, to tell you the truth. Uh, but I really took it wrong to begin with. Folks, uh, we all have to weigh our motives, don't we, on anything we do. Uh, James says, uh, by honoring someone, just because he or she uh, dresses well or wears gold jewelry or drives a fancy car, lives in a big fancy house, he says that we're making outward appearance uh, seem more important than the inner character of that person. He warns Christians against this type of hypocrisy in the church. Uh, We are often guilty of uh, treating a well-dressed, impressive-looking person better than someone who is shabby or tough-looking, poor, whatever. Why why do we do that? Well, maybe it's because we would rather identify with successful people uh, rather than apparent failures. Uh, Poverty makes us feel uncomfortable. Uh, Or we don't want to face our responsibility that we might have to uh, help them out if we are around the poor people, our responsibility. Or maybe it's because we feel better than our, about ourselves uh, when we associate with the people that we admire. Uh, inside, we want to be wealthy ourselves and hope to use the rich person as a means to that end, perhaps. Maybe we're nice to them, they'll put us in our will, in their will, rather, not in our. And that's not too far-fetched. I know a couple of Christians uh, that are waiting for a rich uncle to die and uh, another one that's waiting for a mother that's in her 90s uh, because she's got a few bucks. They're waiting for that inheritance. It can happen, can't it? We think about it. Well, how many more years has so-and-so got? (laughs) So anyway, we have to be very careful. The problem is, James James says, uh, these motives are selfish. They're evil. They're evil. We don't see the rich man or we don't see the poor man as a person in need of good Christian fellowship. And that's what Patrick came to church that day for. And that's what the millionaires came to church for that day. They wanted good Christian fellowship. So the solution to this first problem of partiality then is look at all people, whatever their status, as valuable to God. Now that's what we really have to concentrate on. The rich, the poor, what color they are, their background or whatever. They're valuable to God or they wouldn't be here. So we've got to look through his eyes. Notice verse 5. Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom of he, uh, which he promised to those who love him? <clears throat> so by rejection of the poor in favor of the rich, James says, uh, the Christian, these Christians, has dis- they've dishonored the poor man. Verse 6. God's standard of value is far different from the world's value. The world looks up to the rich and the famous, and they look down at the poor. But the poor are just as precious in the sight of God as the rich. And Jesus said himself in Luke 6.20, he says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. God seems to see value in all men and women, rich or poor or in between. He doesn't love the poor here. We could interpret this as that he's loving the poor more than the rich. No. But many more of the poor 
have, have responded to the gospel than the rich have through the years. You remember what Jesus said when the rich young ruler came to him and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Remember that? And Jesus said, well, you've got to keep my commandments. And he named five of them. And he says, I kept them from my youth up. And, and, and you know, I think he did. And you might look at that and you say, oh, but Jesus didn't say, you're lying to me. <laughs> you know, he didn't say that. He said, well, you lack one thing. You've got to sell all your possessions, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. And the guy walked away, grieved, it says. In fact, one of the Gospels says Jesus was even sad about that. And he turns to the, his disciple and he says, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And then one of the disciples said, well, then who can be saved? And he says, well, with man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So it is possible. But it's tough. God finds a way to lead it, to bring even the rich uh, to their knees at one time. Remember, James says, our richness is not tied to this world. Our riches is in Jesus Christ. And that means we're heirs to his kingdom. You see that in verse 5? We're heirs. How much more richer can we be than that? Problem number two with uh, partiality, it distorts our judgment. It distorts our judgment. Verses 6 and 7. You see, the same usher who paid special attention to the rich uh, <coughs> is cool towards the poor man. As he tells the dirty, shabby, clothed visitor, Either you stand in the corner or you sit on the floor. <clears throat> he immediately has judged these men by their outward appearance. Have you ever done, made that mistake? <laughs> I'm afraid if you haven't, I have too many times. I remember the first millionaire I met. Uh, I, the guy, I worked in the iron shop and this George, a friend of mine, that he says, I want to introduce you to my friend. He knew him for quite a few years, and he says he's a millionaire. And uh, so I was really expecting something. We met in a lumber yard down, right downtown Portland, right off of Powell Boulevard, if you've been through there. It was a big lumber yard. And uh, the guy comes up. We were waiting for a while. He drives up in a 53 Chevy pickup. Now, that today would be worth quite a bit as a classic, but this was 1969. It was a shabby, faded-out, blue pickup. And he opens the door, and he's wearing dirty old coveralls. And so we had some talk, and I, George introduced me to him and everything. Later told me, George told me, he owns this lumber yard. He's worth millions, not just a million. And uh, he says, don't be fooled by his outward appearance. People's outward appearance can distort our judgment real easy. We may assume that their wealth is good. Um... It may indicate intelligence, wise decisions, hard work, it may. I know some it did, it has. But it can be a sign of greed, dishonesty, or selfishness. And so James uh, continues his argument uh, by reminding his fellow Christians that, <coughs> that they are showing special interest or special treatment or giving special treatment to the very people who are abusing them. Uh, he also asked him three questions, and, and we see this next portion here, that drives home his point. Number one, who is it that is oppressing you? Verse 6. It's the rich, not the poor. According to Old Testament um, uh, 
places, in many places I found, in Micah for one, the oppression of the poor by the rich was just commonplace in Israel. Number two question, he says, who is it that drags you into court? Uh, it's not the, not the poor, it's the rich. Not only the rich oppressed the believers, but they also tried to, in the many cases they did, rob them of their properties. And the poor had no way to defend themselves. Without even thinking, these early Christians were actually given special care to the very people who were causing them so much trouble. Question three, who blasphemies the fair name by which you have been called? And of course, that's Jesus. It was the rich who spoke with contempt against the one uh, Jesus who the Christian loved and served. Jesus said, or James, excuse me, James says, partiality distorted their judgment. So the solution is treat all people equally. Treat all people equally. Verse 8. James does not object to the courtesy that was shown to the rich man here, but he criticizes the unequal treatment given to both men. For God sees not as man sees. You remember that in 1 Samuel? For man sees... At, uh, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. First Samuel 16, 7. Remember when Jesse said, he paraded his oldest son, Eliab, by him, and he said, surely this is the God's anointed. And Samuel reminded him, God, uh, man, excuse me, God doesn't see as man sees. God looks at the heart. And then, of course, David got anointed. <clears throat> problem number three with partiality is the greatest problem, probably of all, partiality is sin. Uh, But if you show partiality, you are committing sin, he says in verse 9. Maybe they never thought of partiality as a sin. But to tell you the truth, probably a lot of us didn't until we read this. You know, we didn't see it in the Big Ten, so we said, wow, I never realized that was a sin. That's one thing James does. He pulls out a lot of stuff here that are really convicting The sin here, folks, is not so much favoring the rich, but the neglect of the poor. It's a violation of God's law, the royal law, verse 8. In other words, those who practice prejudice, discrimination, are not uh, only inconsiderate. Uh, They are lawbreakers, he says here. They're sinners. So what's the solution to heading off this uh, sin of favoritism or partiality? And that is, uh, keep the royal law. Love your neighbor as yourself. I think he's speaking to Christians as well as non-Christians here. I really believe that. When you love your neighbor as yourself, you are always at eye level with them. You neither look up at them or you don't or look down at them. Everyone who comes into the church is at one level, whether rich or poor, bathed or unbathed, impressive or unimpressive, a believer or a non-believer. They're at one level. Now, we may pride ourselves in the fact that we've never committed adultery or murder. And yet, if we've committed the sin of partiality, stumbling on just this one point, James says in verse 10, then you're guilty of breaking all the laws. Which one of us is not guilty 
of breaking this law of partiality at one time or another. Uh, the way I read this is James is saying uh, the partiality is as much a transgression of God's law as adultery and murder. Hard to understand, isn't it? That he put it on the same level. Because those are the big ones. But he says, no, you stumble on this one point, you're guilty of all. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James says, in the day of judgment, God will show no mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. If I show mercy to the needy, the poor, instead of sitting in judgment of them, the love of God then reigns in my heart. I'm truly loving one another, or love my neighbor as myself. I can't speak for you, but I need all of God's mercy I can get, you know, at all the time. And therefore, James says, you better start showing more mercy. The spirit-filled, loving Christian looks past the clothes, past the fancy jewelry, past the car that they drive, and past the house that they live in. We no longer see people in class distinctions. The miracle of new birth has changed our outlook on how we look at others. Has that happened to you? Has a new birth, the birth from above, born again experience, changed your outlook, how you look at people? I hope so. If, or maybe you're still a little bit critical, a little judgmental. Uh, sometimes Christians are hardest on others. Christians, which I, uh, you know, they're not so hard on non-believers, they are Christians. Well, I would get this book uh, years ago, Max Licato's book, A Gentle Thunder. Perhaps you've read it. It's pretty good. But anyway, it gives a little illustration here that I thought was kind of catchy. Some time ago, I came upon a fellow on a trip who was carrying a Bible. Are you a believer, I asked him. Yes, he said excitedly. I've learned that you can't be too careful, though. Virgin birth, I ask. I accept it. Deity of Jesus, no doubt. Death of Christ on the cross. He died for all people. Could it be that I was face to face with a true Christian? Perhaps. Nonetheless, I continued my checklist. Status of man, sinner in need of grace. Definition of grace, God doing for man what man can't do. Return of Christ, imminent. The Bible, inspired. The church, the body of Christ. I started getting excited. Conservative or liberal, I ask. Conservative. My heart began to beat a little faster. Heritage? Southern Congregationalist, Holy Son of God, Dispensationalist, Triune Convention. That was mine, he says. Branch. What branch? Premillennial, post-trib, non-charismatic, King James, one-cup communion. My eyes began to mist. I had only one other question to ask this man. Is your pulpit wooden or fiberglass? <laughs> fiberglass, he responded. I withdrew my hand, stiffened my neck. Heretic, I said, walk away. <laughs> we have to fit just right into that right column, don't we? Too bad. Our judgments can be off. What happened to Patrick and the millionaire? Well, the millionaires... 
never came back to the church that I know of, or the church that we were worshiping in. I, and I have no idea why not. But I knew they were hopping around different churches and looking for something. But they did settle in another church down the road, which I, I'm familiar with. I've been inside, and it's got a wooden pulpit. They'll be okay. <laughs> and Patrick, well, the people at Sanders Church looked past the clothes and past the smell. And they really embraced him, to tell you the truth. A few years, a few years later, he had to shave and cut his hair because he wanted to attend Prairie Bible Institute in Canada, which he did. And a lot of our people supported him doing the, uh, on his way there. And then, uh, he w- after that time at Prairie, he, was, uh, he it was, went to the mission field with a group of people, and he went to Nepal, believe it or not. Uh, when I, Patrick never did say when he got back that he led someone to Jesus, but uh, the group, I guess, had been quite influential. And I, I thought about that as the earthquake this last week, thousands of people, maybe just one of them. Uh, was led to Jesus that is underneath that rubble of the 5,000, whatever, there's 6,000 numbers keep going up. Who knows? But just because of one individual. Love, love was the key uh, to the change that we saw in Patrick through the f- next few years. Uh, because the love came from the people in the church and how they treated the visitor that day. Years later, he told me, that he was just testing us. He had a lot of nerve, didn't he? <laughs> but he was just testing us that day that he first came to church to see how we would react. Although he still wore the same thing. <laughs> you know, It wasn't a costume. <laughs> but anyway, in fact, I'll tell you a little story. I don't have any time for it, but I'll tell you anyway. But, uh, <laughs> there was a, one time uh, Patrick came in to use our shower, which uh, Patrick really believed water was strictly for drinking. And... Uh, so Lou said to him, she says, if I catch those leathers laying around here, because we had to spray the furniture after he left, is, uh, I'll burn them, she says. So he took them with her, with him to the shower. So not warm, I don't think. But anyway, so it's, he was an interesting fellow, to say the least. There's no partiality with God, folks. Uh, so we can be not partial ourselves in his church. We can only love one another. Uh, how do you treat visitors? Have you ever thought about it? Do you treat them like you would like to be treated if you were a first-time visitor here? Well, Lou and I have got a song here that uh, she, uh, she never sang with me. For, uh, quite a few people say, well, we like to hear from Lou. And she never sang for quite a while because she had trouble with her voice. But she claims it's all okay right now, right? I don't know. It's been four years. You got it. Diane. Is this on? It's on. Testing one, two. We got it. Thank you. You got it. You don't (laughs) have it? I don't know. That's it. Yeah, I do. You're good, Diane. We got two experts back there, and they should be able to get it. <clears throat> let your love, let your love flow through me. 
So many folks are lonely. Oh Lord, they need someone to care. And when I look about and see them, well, I can't help. gracious Heavenly Father, we fall so short sometimes when we look through the eyes of a perfect God and we look into your eyes. But God, you put up with us. Praise you. Praise you. You have a lot of patience with us. You say, I'm not finished with you yet or I'd call you home. And you haven't called us home yet. Maybe today, maybe soon, but not today. So God, we just pray. You continue to fill us with the love that reached out to us so that we can reach out to others. Others, Lord, who need you more than they need their next breath of air, but they don't even know it. Others who are going the opposite direction of what you'd like to see them go, but perhaps we, in our background, where we are, our life, 
can touch theirs and show them Jesus. We pray, God, that that love will flow right through us. And God, keep us pure and clean as we've seen this morning. Convict us, Lord, when we've stepped over the line, perhaps, uh, with this sin of partiality. Lord, just uh, lay it on us. Don't let us sleep at night until we come to you and confess it. Thank you, Jesus, for your people, each person here today. Lord, just make them feel special because of you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.